happy, happy Labor Day from us here at Rising. This Labor Day may be sweeter uh, than some as it comes after a historic ruling by the National Labor Relations Board last week, restoring elements of a policy it did away with over 50 years ago that requires businesses that commit labor law violations to bargain with unions without holding formal elections. That means if businesses try union busting, the union gets automatically formed and the business is required by law to negotiate. In a case involving building materials company Chemex Construction Materials, the board's ruling is being heralded as a major victory for the labor movement. The decision, quote, partially revived a doctrine known as Joy Silk, named for a 1949 case in which the board said employers have to bargain with unions unless they have a good faith doubt that majority support exists, according to Reuters. Joining us now to weigh in is analyst and Rising Friday's co-host, Jessica Burbank. Hello, Jessica. Good to be on with you. So what do I need to know about this uh, labor ruling, which I'm sure I'm not going to like, <laughs> but fill me in anyway, please. Right. There's, of course, this perspective that, well, if the majority of the workers didn't want the union, why should there be a union in the workplace? And the response to that is basically corporations like Amazon have so much legal power and power to hire union-busting consultants that will come in and post things in bathroom stalls that spread a lot of misinformation about unions. Wherever there's been an inkling of union organization, this has been the response from very large corporations, Amazon, Walmart, FedEx, uh, all kinds of large corporations that just don't want their employees to unionize. So they'll start spreading misinformation. They'll put ballot boxes on their property. This is a tactic that Amazon did in Alabama and Bessemer during their first union election drive, which is just against union election laws. Amazon knows this very well. And they'll do these things that are very deliberate union busting so that employees never get to the point of being able to hold an election, never get the amount of signatures required. Or if we do get to the point where they can hold an election, so many of the employees have uh, been, been taken by this misinformation. They believe that if they vote for the union, there's some way they'll get fired. Their pay will be less than it is now. So the misinformation affects their perceptions of unions. But also, if Amazon simply wants to push back the election, they'll do things that they know they are illegal. So then it will be challenged with the NLRB afterwards, and the election won't count regardless of the result. Then they'll have to hold another election and so on. So they're pushing off ever having to have a union formed at their warehouses or ever having to bargain with their workers. And the NLRB simply doesn't have the funding to fight these corporations, nor do workers. And so this is kind of a necessary ruling because it's been the case that wherever workers have tried to form a union, it's been years out where they're still just trying to hold a free and fair election. So this tactic really needed a policy response, and that's what I see this as. I love your opening hypothetical question. If the majority of workers didn't want a union, then you know why have them automatically unionized when there's union busting? Because you could also argue, well, if the majority of workers weren't going to vote for a union, why were you union busting in the first place? So this is, this is really fascinating. I'm so glad you brought up some specific examples of how these corporations have engaged in union busting in recent history and generally speaking. That example from Bessemer, Alabama is really instructive. I think the idea is that they know that if they put uh, ballot collection boxes 
on uh, the uh, employee, employee's property. There's a sense that they'll be surveilled and that people feel like they might have uh, retribution against them, lose their jobs, et cetera, if they are perceived to be voting in favor of a union. Also in Alabama, they did this incredible thing where uh, union unionizers were passing out pamphlets at a, at a, uh, stop, a stoplight outside of the uh, warehouse. And so they got the city to change the stoplight uh, duration length so that the cars wouldn't stop and linger there, so they weren't able to pass out information. I mean, they really will go to incredible lengths. Uh, can you broaden this conversation out a little bit? Because we're having such a labor moment in the United States. Um, obviously, there was the big win with Amazon. There are Starbucks locations unionizing around the country. We have this United, United uh, Auto Workers a Union that is now pushing for a four-day work week. Can you give us a sense of what you think are some of the biggest gains that are happening, and perhaps what you attribute to all of this uh, labor energy? I think one of the biggest gains is just one in three Americans are supportive of unions. So they see that organized labor is the response to the kind of growth in economic inequality that we're seeing. In 1965, the average CEO pay as compared to worker, the pay ratio was 20 to one. Now, in 2021, that figure is 398.8 times the average worker at the company. So we're seeing CEOs really reap the fruits of the labor of the workers at their companies. And we've seen also wages be stagnant since the 1970s, despite workers and our economy being more productive than ever before. And so I think people are waking up to this reality. We also have more Americans living paycheck to paycheck than ever before. The figure is about 60% of Americans now. We're also seeing someone earning median income in the United States be housing burdened, meaning they're paying more than 30% on rent. So I think just the sheer economic conditions we have in this country is leading workers to say something's got to change, something's got to give. We've seen the wealthy accumulate so much wealth that now the top 1% has more of the nation's money, more of the nation's wealth than the middle 60% of the country. I think mm -hmm. people have seen the disparities and that's led them to think, okay, well, if the government isn't going to do anything about this, if the very rich people aren't going to wake up one day and say, you know what, we should share some of this wealth with the workers that helped us accumulate it. If that's not going to happen, it's up to us to get organized. And so that is good. It is good that that is the response rather than many of the alternatives, nihilism, simply giving up. I think the fact that people look to organized labor and see this is the way we correct this is a good thing. It's sad that it has to come to that. It's sad that our elected officials haven't seen the growth in wealth disparity and said, let's pass up policies to regulate this. Uh, that's sad. But it's good that workers see organizing as the way forward. Is this a particularly active moment, do you think, for the labor movement in the political system? Um, I, I don't know that, uh, I mean, in terms of the media cycle, it seems sometimes that economic issues just get put on the, the back burner, given everything go, else going on in the U.S. politics. Like, what's the state of the labor movement and the um, actual influence they're wielding over, you know, what's going on? That's a really good question. I think uh, we're at a point where there's a big divide between some of the traditional unions and the way they do things and a lot of the worker-led worker organizing. So unions like the Amazon Labor Union, where it was workers coming together to form their own union. We've seen Starbucks do a similar brand of this and then ultimately partner with Workers United, which is a branch off of the SEIU. So a lot of these big internationals really haven't shown up for their workers in the way that I think workers would have liked. 
state. And a lot of the big internationals are those who have connections with media uh, and politicians as well and political parties. And so now we're seeing workers really take back their unions from within and say, you know, you've signed some contracts that we haven't been happy with and voting out some of the union leaders that have acted in a way that was against the workers' interests. And they would have liked to maybe strike for a better contract rather than sign the contracts they have. I think also people were outraged to see how Congress and the Biden administration reacted to the potential of a railroad strike, the way they used their authority to essentially bust that union strike. I think people see now labor issues as kind of independent from the traditional union structure, and that's good. I think there's a lack of media coverage simply because so many of the advertisers don't want unions at their own corporations. And I think that explains a lot of the lack of the coverage in mainstream media of the labor movement and of organized labor. It's definitely true that for whatever reason, the labor reporters that used to be on staff at a number of major organizations, those positions have been cut back. And you do see um, a real paucity of substantive labor coverage, despite the fact, as you've pointed out, that increasingly uh, Americans, especially younger Americans, are recognizing that there is a direct relationship between their own stagnated wages and the incredible wealth that's being aggregated at the very top, that rich people aren't kind of in a benign way just being rich in a way that doesn't uh, come from their own—is is disentangled from their own labor and their own profits, but that there is a, a transfer of wealth from the bottom to the top that's become exacerbated over recent years, and they're now willing increasingly to withhold their labor to reclaim a piece of that pie. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me on. And happy Labor Day. <laughs> happy Labor Day, y'all. Commentator Tim Poole recently hit the airwaves with this interesting take on women, men, and the dating pool. Let's watch. The men are saying, we want something different. We don't want the Instagram hoe that I can fly in overnight just to have a quick, you know. That is biology. That's never happening. That's biology. With all due respect, that's never happening. Yeah. No, 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 see, no, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Like, go ahead. I, I, I agree a lot with what he's saying. Imagine if women are only looking at the top eight, nine, ten uh, of men. Yeah. If these guys, if guys like you, just started shaming women. Uh, do, do they? You know, you know who's paying for OnlyFans, right? It's low quality. It's lower quality guys. Yeah, 100%. so if yeah. high quality dudes who got really nice watches and pull up in a Bugatti, and this woman's like, "Yeah, I want to come hang with you," and he goes, "So yeah, what's your body count?" And he goes, "How dare you ask me that? I don't want no hoe in my car." And he takes off. Yeah. Now she's embarrassed. She got shut down, and more women are gonna say. If I want a high value man, because only the guys are going to come after me, are going to be high value. So Tim, maybe, maybe let's, flip. Let's the, be real here. Maybe though. Okay, we're going to the... turn this into the Dreamcast. Yeah. I think what's going wrong here is they believe a high quality man is the type of misogynist who first cares about sex <laughs> above anything else and has enough money to be driving a Bugatti. A high quality man is someone who loves and cares for his partner and his family and has values and morals and leads a good life. I think you will be led astray if you define high quality based on who's driving a Bugatti or not. That is not, <laughs> I think, what I Amber or most women consider a high quality man. 
I'm sure my face probably said it all in reaction to that video, but I do think that there is a double standard that's kind of coming out of the manosphere with high quality women versus high quality men. And that's not to say that it's incorrect to suggest that women shouldn't be promiscuous. And I don't even just say that because of the sexist perception of it that can often come out of these conversations. But women tend to produce more serotonin, um, more of these bonding hormones when we have uh, sexual relations with members of the opposite sex. And if you have too many, um, I guess you could say, uh, sexual relationships with individuals that you don't intend on staying with long-term, it does sort of um, mess up the reward response system in the brain that induces us to have a, a bonding mechanism with men that we intend to have children with and raise families with. So there is a, a legitimate biological reason why it's not a good idea for women to do this, but to hear it coming from men who admit to calling up Instagram hoes to sleep with them and have one night stands is pretty hilarious to me. You should be the behavior that you want other people to emulate. I think all of us would be better off if we treated our partners with more respect, if we treated members of the opposite sex with more respect, if we treated ourselves with respect. Because it's not only doing damage to women if you run around engaging in one night stands and, and treating them like they're disposable, but it also reflects poorly on yourself. And so if these men want high quality women, I would also encourage them to be high quality. And those are traits like the ones that you mentioned, Jessica, of protecting, protecting your partner, taking care of your partner, having an equal amount of respect for your partner and, and taking care of each other and trying to, uh, to build each other up as opposed to tear each other down or to just treat your partner as if they're some kind of trophy to be held up. Like, see, I found the high quality woman. Relationships are so much more interpersonal than that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. When we are living our lives for others' perception, we'll probably end up saying a lot of stuff like what those guys, Tim Pool included, were saying on that podcast. Relationships shouldn't be about who is on Instagram looking good, who did you fly out, et cetera. What is your past like? It should be about your connection with that person. And I think when you are dating, when you are someone who has a, a, a solid, good love life, I'm not calling these guys any names or making any implications about them, but I do know from experience that when you are someone who sees relationships in that way and you have that experience, you're not going to be judging people based on their past in such a, a, a vain way like these guys are. You have a completely different perception on dating and relationships when you've actually loved somebody. And so talking about dating and relationships in this very transactional way is something that we see a lot in the age of the internet. But in real life, if I ever encountered a guy who talks like the dudes on those podcasts, the date would be over. I would leave. I would go home. It's just not treating people like real human beings at the end of the day. And I think it goes both ways when we talk about sex and relationships. A lot of people have noticed that we have a culture of like casual relationships and hookups and, you know, going home with people. It's very New York City. It's very L.A., uh, this kind of dating and hookup culture. And I know people who have engaged in it who are like, yeah, it's kind of empty. There's, I don't really get a lot from it. And I think it's for reasons that you said, Amber, people want connections. I think 
loneliness and men in the manosphere will realize this is not resolved by having, you know, many partners uh, or having high quality women as defined by, I'm sure the guy on those podcasts would define it, which is not someone who is your best friend and someone who you love dearly. It's defined by other ways. Loneliness is something that's resolved by finding someone who understands you, who you have a deep connection with. I just think the manosphere advice is going to lead a lot of young men astray if they listen to folks like Tim Pool. Talk to your family members about it. Talk to your friends about it. Because I don't think people who don't have a lot of relationship experience are even qualified to be giving this advice to other men. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say maybe the guys on those podcasts don't. I also feel like they're anger, I guess you could say, or their bitterness is directed towards the wrong group of people. Um, and not to say that people don't have uh, individual responsibility and that women aren't capable of making their own choices, but there very much was a societal movement from the time that I was a child to really get a lot of women to reject the idea of striving for a family as something that would provide value or purpose to their life. Um, they very much push the idea of doing everything for your career and, and waiting until later in life to settle down and have uh, a husband and have kids. And that led a lot of women, as you said, to fill that void with the hookup culture because they were lonely and they were kind of sad and they were feeling kind of empty. And unfortunately, hookup culture has only intensified those feelings because again, your brain gives you that sudden rush of connection only for that person to then abandon you in your mind. And so you're basically re-traumatizing yourself over and over again when you have these types of fleeting relationships. Um, that's obviously kind of a reductive way of, of putting it, but that's the way that your brain responds to those situations. And so I think we need to look at a broader societal issue with how we talk about relationships, how women have been conditioned to believe that they can behave the same way as men in relationships and still be as satisfied, even though women tend to have a more biological predisposition to wanting long-term bonding relationships. Um, so I think these men would be better served in maybe talking about some of the way that our, our modern media, our culture, our society has convinced women that this is a good avenue for them to take as opposed to being so harsh on these individual women because I think that only, I mean, if you watch this podcast, the Whatever Dating podcast, you see that the women who are confronted for being on OnlyFans or having uh, three sexual relationships in the day, there's some crazy stuff we hear on there, they kind of tend to be reflexively um, repulsed by the idea of being criticized so aggressively for their behavior. So I think it only makes them more more likely to retreat into those types of relationships as opposed to actually rethinking their behavior and trying to do what is maybe better or best for them. Um, so I think we just need to have a little bit more compassion overall when we're talking about the dating situation in modern society, particularly considering young people are far less likely to have sex far less likely to have long-term relationships, likely to get married later in life and have children later in life. This is a, an issue that goes beyond just some men complaining on a podcast. Yeah, I think we're all better off if we have more freedom of choice on this. I think there's a supply and demand thing going on here with the women from Instagram being flown out. If there weren't men flying them out, I'm sure they wouldn't be getting on the plane. So I, I think they really need to reflect on that a little bit. 
but I'm not going to go around and, and, and shame people for their personal choices. I know from being in my late 20s and dating for some time what I want and what I value. And I feel lucky that I grew up in a household where my mom was like, listen, you know, love is love. You should engage with other people from the perspective of wanting love and finding love and who treats you well. Not everyone was so lucky to, to grow up with those morals. And I get that. We live in kind of a messed up society when it comes to that. But I don't think we're going to arrive at a good place by just shaming people. The OnlyFans thing is, is a good example of this because they're shaming women for using OnlyFans in a way that I've never seen this group of guys shame people who, who do porn and record with that industry. And that's interesting because that's not women being in control of their own means of production when it comes to doing sex work. I think they're most mad about OnlyFans because the page is controlled by the woman and the money goes to the woman and she's not being directed by someone else or nearly partaking uh, in those acts with a partner when they're recording. And so I think these guys have a weird thing about controlling women. And I think we're better off when everyone makes their own choice. If there's a, a woman who wants to be working while her husband stays at home, that's totally fine. If you want to have a different kind of relationship, totally fine. If you're happy, you know, going out and traveling and meeting different partners for a while, fine. As long as you're okay doing it and you're doing it for yourself and not for other people. I think uh, we'd be in a much better place if people saw relationships from that way instead of imposing their values on someone else and speaking from a place of maybe insecurity and fear. I think we could talk about this all day, but we're going to have to leave it here. We've got more rising after this. During his time in office, former President Donald Trump signed into law the First Step Act, a reform aimed at fixing federal prison sentencing guidelines, reducing recidivism, and freeing people who had been incarcerated for very lengthy sentences, ended up freeing about 5,000 people from, out, from these outrageous sentences, in the words of in, former incarcerated actor and self-described militant activist and filmmaker Craig Scott, who wrote in a recent article for Newsweek. Scott makes the case that the same criminal justice system Trump radically reformed is being used to discredit him. Uh, none of U.S. formerly incarcerated persons freed under the First Step Act are blind to that irony. Trump's mugshot only increases his street cred. Uh, that's the argument. Craig Scott joins us now to share his story. Welcome, Craig. Thank you. Appreciate you having me here. Now, this has been a controversial proposition, as a number of conservatives took to Twitter following the mugshot, making the argument that the existence of a presidential mugshot would naturally lead to increased support among black Americans, the presumption being that black Americans like mugshots uh, or criminality or, or find that, that some kinship uh, in his being indicted uh, for election fraud crimes. Give me, give me the, the argument as you understand it. Well, I, you know, I, I can understand that, you know, from a cynical standpoint, but from a more, uh, you know, realistic standpoint, the mugshot represents an experience that a lot of disenfranchised black and brown people here in America have experienced. And it's that common experience that makes Donald Trump relatable. It also focuses the fact that there's, for some reason, the powers that be are after this guy. So all of those things is what uh, are represented in the fact that they've got this mugshot of a former president floating around in the news. 
Is it that and, you know, also the, uh, the Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, the likely opponent of Donald Trump, if he is the next nominee, has this history on um, criminal justice issues of, of being very, you know, punitive, going back to the policies he supported in the 90s that I believe, I, I read your piece, um, had to do with your own incarceration? Exactly. I mean, this is like the most significant uh, comparison or juxtaposition. Here's the one candidate who was the architect of a law that ended up creating what they call the mass incarceration movement. And then another candidate who literally came into office and systemically reversed that same law. So you can't be blind to the fact that these two candidates represent two opposing views when it comes to that particular uh, uh, issue. Do you how did, I'm sorry, how did uh, Donald Trump systemically reverse the crime bill, my understanding is that parts, some of the most insidious parts of the crime bill involve the crack cocaine disparity, which various Democratic presidents have unwound. And I certainly don't want to take any credit away from Donald Trump for the STEP Act, but I am curious whether or not it's really accurate to describe what Donald Trump did with the STEP Act as having systemically reversed the 1994 crime bill in all of its harms. Well. The best way I think that I can uh, describe it is this, is that when Barack Obama came into office and many of us expected him to make systemic uh, uh, changes, he didn't do that. What he did, he went by case-by-case -case basis. I call it the Oprah Winfrey approach. You get a sentence commutation, you get a sentence com commutation. So he never dug into any of the actual laws that were creating that disparity. But I'm sorry, isn't- Trump won the other. He made changes to the actual laws themselves so that it will have a more uh, uh, system wide effect. And so that's why I call it a systemic uh, change, because he literally went into the legislation and changed it where Barack did not want to touch a letter of the uh, crime bill prior to that. Do you think uh, Donald Trump's history uh, with the First Step Act, you know, something that was supported at the time by a lot of Republicans, although now obviously Donald Trump is being challenged. There are a number of other Republican candidates. I'm not sure exactly where each of them stands on that. I know some of them have expressed a desire to undo the First Step Act. You know, concerns about crime are starting to crowd some of the criminal justice um, consensus. Do you think this gives Trump an advantage over other Republicans that he has this, this achievement on his record? Of course, of course. I mean, listen, Trump represents an opposition to, one, the status quo in general, and a rebellion, if you will, against the establishment leadership of the Republican Party. When he was calling for legislative change in this area, listen, he had to drag Mitch McConnell uh, uh, screaming and kicking over that line in order to get him to do it. So he, uh, he, he spent a lot of political capital in order to force a lot of his own Republican um, uh, party members to support this uh, particular bill. So yes, he, in doing so, he distinguishes himself from the establishment leadership of his own party, of course. What are the kinds of criminal justice reforms that you've heard about from Trump or other uh, GOP candidates in the race right now that you're really looking forward to seeing implemented if one of them becomes president? Um, I'm going to tell you, I haven't heard any uh, discussion from any of the other candidates about uh, criminal reform. And I'm going to be very uh, frank with you. 
I'm not looking forward to seeing anything in that area from DeSantis, who they're considering the second, you know, uh, runner-up, if you will. So in this area, Trump has been the only candidate. He's been the only former president who's actually addressed that particular issue square on, and he's made a significant, I consider, radical change in that direction. What what kind of policy, as a formerly incarcerated person, what um, you know, what policies are top in mind to help um, people maybe who aren't even in as good a situation as you are, um, you know, be be rehabilitated? You know, we talk about recidivism in general. There's a you know, there's rising crime in some cities, not all cities. It's you know, it can be painted as overly negative by the media. Um, what do you think, you know, from from someone who's um, who's you know gone down this pathway in life and you know now has um, uh, has a lot to show for oneself, um, writing and speaking on these issues? What do formerly incarcerated people need um, so they can be rehabilitated in society without you having to resort to these really punitive long sentences? Uh, well, outside of of course, just like what you just addressed, uh, there has to be a change in the sentences. The sentences have to be attached to punishing the person for their actual crime that they commit. And that's, you know, that's on the sentencing side. On the reentry side, what we need in order to keep recidivism down is the bare necessities. This house that I'm standing in right now, the only reason why I have this house is because my family has helped me and is providing that for me. Had I not had that, you know, I would like to believe that I would still be able to, you know, do positive things, but just that basic necessity of a house, clothing on your back, food, transportation, either organizations or family have to be able to provide that for those of us who are returning home if we want to really see a change in the recidivism rate. When you spoke to the idea that sentences need to be aligned uh, with the actual crime committed. I presume you're alluding to kind of mandatory minimums and uh, the, those policies which which drove uh, a market increase in the, in the incarcerated population. And I'm curious what you make of um, the emphasis that so many people uh, who are running in the Republican primary and in the Republican uh, party, more generally speaking, seem to attribute a rise in crime to lax prosecutors who aren't uh, implementing long enough sentences for folks who are uh, arrested and convicted of crimes. Do you think that that's what's driving um, crime rates in, in some cities that are going up? What's driving crime rates is Joe Biden's terrible economic plan. That's yeah. what's driving crime rates, because that's always been what has driven crime rates. This narrative that somehow black and brown people just want to commit crimes because they just want to do that, it, that is the most racist argument that can be made by either, uh, uh, either party. And I've seen candidates and individuals from both parties make that sort of argument. The problem is, is that within our communities, the economic opportunities are limited. And facing those limited economic opportunities, oftentimes crime is the thing that we often uh, uh, end up turning to. If there were more availability of meaningful jobs, meaningful education in those same areas, guess what? Crime would go down. So this whole uh, you know narrative, I, I, I reject that all you know all, all the way. It's interesting. In particular, um, there's been some discussion about. 
Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, for example, has advocated for cutting any number of agencies uh, that have historically disproportionately uh, provided opportunities for upper mobility for the black community in particular. Especially in an earlier era in American history when there was so much employment discrimination, government jobs were some of the first jobs that really gave black Americans an opportunity to enter the middle class. And I'm sure, as you know from life and personal experience, jobs as uh, couriers, um, working for the UPS, thing, uh, USPS, things like that have always been um, significant opportunities for upward mobility for us. Uh, what do you make of the choice to say, I want to cut, I think he said, 75 percent of the, the federal workforce and the implication of what that means for the employment opportunities for working class people generally, but black people specifically, given what you've just said about economic opportunities and the relationship between those economic opportunities and criminality? I would like to hear what he's going to do on the balance. Okay, if you're going to get rid of these, you know, government jobs and positions that many uh, minorities are holding, what are you going to do on the private sector side that are that's going to now integrate them into the private sector? And if he's not presenting that, then you got to see what he's presenting as 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 what it is. My I personally, my mother went from social services to employment through a program that basically uh, got her employment in the social security uh, agency. So I know what that is, and I know that the improvement that that did to our, uh, to our lives. So I'm not uh, going to take a position as if to say, oh, well, yeah, we got to get rid of all, all of the government jobs. The problem is, is that we are underrepresented in the private sector. And what is he going to do about that? And until he has a program for that, I've got to be suspicious about what, uh, what he's proposing. Craig Scott, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Last week, 12-year-old Jaden Rodriguez was pulled from his Colorado classroom for sporting a Gaston flag patch on his backpack, commonly known as the Don't Tread on Me flag. We've got an update for you. The Vanguard School Board of Directors has reversed its decision, ultimately siding with Jaden. In a statement released by the board Wednesday, the district wrote, the Vanguard School recognizes the historical significance of the Gadsden flag and its place in history. This incident is an occasion for us to reaffirm our deep commitment to a classical education in support of these American principles. Many are cheering the decision, maintaining it's a win, for First Amendment rights. I mean, he's 12 years old and the Gadsden flag is the don't tread on me flag with the snake, often known on the internet as no step snake. But it's like, we hate the British. The British are bad, they were mean to us. I don't think the 12 year old thought it was that deep. I don't think the 12 year old even knows the historical significance if I'm being honest with you. I think maybe he got it from his parents. And I just, this is one of those things where if, unless you have a pre-known policy of no political symbolism in school, you can't really get mad at a 12-year-old for putting the no-step snake symbol on his backpack. Right. I mean, especially considering this is not even really a political flag, per se. I mean, it is if you consider the revolution to be political, I guess, but not, you know, in modern partisan political terms. This was a flag that was created in 1775. It was flown on U.S. naval ships during the Revolutionary War. Um, and what some people take issue with is that Certain images from the flag were later co-opted by the Confederacy, but the Gadsden flag itself still remained very much 
a revolutionary symbol. Um, so when Jaden was pulled out of his classroom, the teacher who took issue with the flag cited its quote unquote origins in slavery as the reason he couldn't have it on his backpack, which is just a totally false interpretation of what it means. We have multiple states such as Virginia, Florida, and Arizona who all use versions of the Gadsden flag on their license plates. So the idea that a, you know, a middle school aged kid couldn't wear it on his backpack into a public uh, school, I think is pretty absurd. Yeah, I think it's pretty absurd as well. I understand that there's some modern use of the flag where it's like, you know, we don't want an oppressive government. We don't want too much taxes and those taxes being used for things that don't benefit us. Okay, do I think the 12-year-old was making that statement? Maybe not. And I think the board or the officials at the school initially, not understanding the flag's meaning and history or the modern use, suggest that maybe we need to reinvest in our schools and put some time and effort into hiring better teachers, putting more money into developing a better curriculum. I don't know, this seems to me that if the teachers responsible for educating our students don't know what the flag means, then they will not even do a simple Google search before they send a 12 year old to, to take off the backpack. That's traumatizing for a 12 year old. Young kids, look at him in that photo, I mean, or in the video, he is so small. Like, this is insane that our teachers were responsible from this and school officials were responsible from this. I would just expect better from the people responsible for educating our children. And I think this goes to show that education is in crisis in the United States. He is so small. He doesn't know what he's doing. He is a little baby. Look at him. He's so cute. <laughs> he is really cute. <laughs> I do think it is a reminder that we definitely need better civic education and, and history education in our country. It is a shame that this teacher completely got this wrong. I do want to give a little bit more credit to Jaden because he uh, actually stood up for himself pretty well. He not only refused to take the patch off, but argued with the teacher on her misunderstanding of where this flag came from. Um, I mean, this is basically akin to taking issue with someone sporting an American flag on their person. Um, so definitely far out of bounds in terms of what type of speech a school would be able to censor. And kudos to his parents as well for teaching him to stand up for his beliefs, for standing up for him when the teachers came after him. I know some parents kind of just side with the authority figures over their kids, and that can lead to a lot of resentment later in life. So I was just glad to see all across the board that Jaden and his parents stood up for him and that the school eventually reversed the decision of the teacher. They had a meeting. They said, there's no problem with the flag. We're going to let him wear it. That was the right outcome. I'm glad that this didn't escalate any further and uh, potentially go to a lawsuit because I'm quite certain that that would have been the next step in this situation. He's got a lot on his backpack there. I'm not sure what the other stuff is, but I saw the word revolution, which leads me to believe then maybe a lot of this stuff doesn't come from a 12-year-old kid. I don't know a lot of 12-year-old kids. I can think back to being around that age. I was not thinking about political rev revolution. In which case, if, if this came about because the school was concerned about the kid being very invested in politics, could come from the home, could come from his friends, could very well come from the internet. I mean, that's when you invest in the kid and you give the kid some more attention with guidance counselors or teachers and you're like hey 
maybe we think about dinosaurs and trains and stuff and not the revolution and the British Empire. You know, this is a time to invest in the kid, not punish him for what's on his backpack. I'm sure he doesn't know better. I'm sure it could be some kind of a phase if that's what's going on here. But I also think schools have a bad habit of not wanting to deal with kids or invest in kids and give them the time and nurturing necessary to grow them up to be good human beings. And instead, it's this this little form of punishment. Oh, you have a snake on your backpack and now you're in trouble for that. It's kind of a cop out when you could really be investing in the kids. Sure. And even if it were the case that this kid is, I don't know, wise beyond his years, or maybe he's just really interested in history and he loves the story of the American Revolution, or, or maybe he has started to dabble in politics a little bit. I think that was probably around the age where I started to first get interested in politics. So I definitely understand perhaps where he's coming from. Um, for him to be punished for that because maybe the teachers think that he's interested in politics in the wrong way is such a shame. They should really be nurturing that interest, I think, um, and, and encouraging him along his, his path of self-education. Yeah, I don't know. It says J. Rod VP revolution. I don't know what any of that means. You know, boys will be boys. This You could be right. It could just be he's into the Revolutionary War stuff right now. That's his thing. It could be he's getting into politics and he doesn't fully understand it. But I think it's traumatizing to punish a kid for reasons that I'm sure the kid doesn't even understand. And then to be wrong as the school when it comes to the, the historical meaning of the flag, saying that it has roots in slavery is a bit odd for me. Like that's, I think what we really need to focus on here is that the school messed up. The school didn't have a policy that said you couldn't wear this stuff. Uh, and if it did, this wouldn't have been a controversy, right? And so I think that's really at the heart of this is that there's something weird going on in our schools. And instead of dealing with it in a way where we're prioritizing the students and instead kind of lashing out and having this weird contention between parents and teachers, you don't do the job of being a teacher in America if you don't care about the youth and you don't care about their future and educating them. And you're not a parent responsible for kids and dealing with the teachers unless you really care for your kids. So it seems that there needs to be some kind of way to put the kids first instead of fighting with each other. And I really think that's missing because we've seen the degradation of community in America. This could have been a phone call from the teacher to the parent and a quick conversation about what's going on with Mr. J-Rod, VP of the revolution. It could have been resolved <laughs> if there was a better relationship there, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. Let's keep this stuff between teachers and parents and, and stop uh, turning everything into a, a massive cause for discipline. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Newly unearthed footage shows young Vivek Ramaswamy, and this footage has gone viral. Let's watch some of it. Good. Let's get to my question here. Go ahead. Reverend Sharpton, hello. I'm Vivek, and I want to ask you, uh, last week on the show we had Senator Kerry, and this week, and, and the week before, we had Senator Edwards. And my question for you is, of all the Democratic candidates out there, why should I vote for the one with the least political experience? Well, you shouldn't, because I have the most political experience. <laughs> I got involved in the political uh, movement when I was 12 years old. And I've been involved in social policy for the last 30 years. So don't confuse people that have a job with political experience. Uh, whoever the 
head of, uh, uh, of, of some local bureaucracy has a job in Cambridge. That doesn't mean that they have political experience, and it doesn't mean they have the experience to uh, run the United States uh, government. So I think that we confuse title holders with political experience, as we have, uh, have seen with the present occupant in the White House. George Bush was a governor and clearly has shown he doesn't have political experience. <laughs> Now, Ramaswamy wasn't the only budding political star to take to hardball in their youth during that 2003 little uh, shindig at Harvard, I believe. You were maybe back there somewhere, Brianna. She's shaking her head. I was she... elsewhere being normal. <laughs> <laughs> but Vivek was not alone. Let's check out who else was there. Congressman, why are you the only presidential candidate not attending tomorrow's youth-oriented Rock the Vote Forum? And do you think young people's votes matter in your campaign? They matter a lot. That's why I'm here tonight. And uh, I've got to be in Iowa. I had a preset uh, meeting that I've got to go to. I've got to win Iowa. I'm going to win Iowa, so I'm going to be in Iowa tomorrow night. But I talk to young people everywhere I am. I've got lots of young people on my campaign. And maybe I ought to say this now. When I was in college, oh. Jack Kennedy was president. And I was moved when he said to young people like me, get involved in politics. Give part of your life to politics. So I just want to say to all of you here, get involved in public life. <laughs> get back to your country. Don't just take from it. And get involved in this campaign. If it's not for me, get behind somebody and get out there and work and make this country a better place. You can do this. All right. Now it's an audience of tryhards. <laughs> I mean, it, that's kind of the gist of the uh, commentary that's been going on since people realized that these two obviously very ambitious political stars on different sides of the aisle both happened to attend the same kind of event. You had both, Pete Buttigieg was also 38 years old when he was running for president uh, back in 2000. And I think the reaction that many folks and their respective parties had to these figures is driven by a similar feeling of kind of, have they always wanted to be president for kind of personal careerist reasons? I, I'm loath to defend Pete Buttigieg, but he does at least seem to have done a lot of public service. He was a mayor. He was in the armed forces. He did do some stuff in a way that Vivek Ramaswamy's political life before this moment is a real black hole. Uh, this is something that he was called out on uh, on The Breakfast Club in an interview with, with Teslin Figueroa, who has been a guest on this show in the past, a political commentator I really enjoy, where she was pressing him on the question of his kind of political origin of why he's doing this, why he's running for president, you know, should he do public service? What is the contrast between mm -hmm. someone like him and someone like Al Sharpton, who has not been in politics and who could describe himself as an outsider to politics, but was genuinely showing a commitment to making the world better uh, through the choices that he's made in his life uh, from the civil rights movement onward? So, yeah, what did you, what did you make of the coincidence here? I think it is uh, interesting. I mean, there were a lot of jokes about, oh, the simulation is glitching or something like that. Uh, I think it's interesting to compare, actually, Buttigieg and Vivek um, in terms of how they became a big thing. I mean, Vivek's been a big thing for the last couple of days since his debate performance. Don't know if this is going to, you know, this wave could crest. We'll see. Um, they're both, what's similar about them in terms of their campaigns was the media strategy, is talking to... It, Pete did a lot of this, too, talking to, um, you know, not just, just cable news appearances, although they're both willing to do those to mm -hmm. the end of time, but also a lot of, the, a lot of podcasts, a lot of independent media, different people. 
that has catapult that catapulted them to a lot more um, national notoriety and credibility uh, versus you know more traditional candidates who are more traditional in their in their thinking about when they're you know, to speak. DeSantis is very careful and very cautious about doing um, national media. You know, a, a someone like. You know, Amy Klobuchar, or Kristen Gillibrand, or Castro, whoever else was in the in the 2020 contest, was as well. And it goes to show you that there is, you can do yourself a lot of credit. I, obviously, you can damage yourself, you can hurt yourself if you really screwed up. And yeah. people will, some people will not like you, but other people will want to hear more from you, and you'll get invited to go more places. And uh, you know, we're we're beyond um, you know, the media. Very broadly defined, has a lot of power to. Um, anoint next big things, but I, I, by media, I mean, again, in the broadest possible sense, the entire YouTube ecosystem as well. I'm not just the narrow pundit class on, uh, yeah, well, on I, CNN, I, Fox, or You're MSNBC. right about his strategy. In fact, he's done a couple of high-profile interviews in the mainstream media and corporate media. He was on Fox News talking to Hannity recently in a clip that also went viral. Because again, just like he did with Dana Bash, uh, and as we covered earlier this week, he was asked in an interview about previous statements uh, uh, that he's made and seem in his response was, well, I didn't say it, I was mis misquoted. Hannity had the quote on hand. Uh, I think we have this clip. Let's go ahead and take a look at how that went down at Fox. Go over some of the issues though. You know, you said aid to Israel, our number one ally, only democracy in the region should end in 2028 uh, and that they should be integrated That's with false. their neighbors. I have an exact quote, you want me to read it? That's actually, yeah, you, I can tell you the exact quote. What I said is it would be a mark of success if we ever got to a point in our relationship with Israel, if Israel never needed the United States' as aid. And, Sean, you know how politics is played. A lot of the other professional politicians who have been threatened by my rise have used that statement to say that I would cut off aid to Israel. That's not correct. I've been... So what's interesting there is I obviously don't agree with Hannity. Uh, I don't right. share his politics. I think that Vivek is right to want to, at very least, um, put strong conditions on aid to Israel. Uh, or, or should or, be equal it, to the other. It, it, that's what he it, suggested. It doesn't need to but, be but, special but that's and above my, and my issue here is that He did the, say that. The issue here is that my substantive agreement or disagreement with Hannity versus Vivek. It's that when pressed on his beliefs, he doubles down and he equivocates. So in, in other contexts, like on the debate stage, he said, yes, I'm willing to stand here and say that, uh, you know, cl the climate change uh, hoax isn't, or whatever he said, climate change policy is a hoax. He's willing to stand there and say and pound his chest and say, I'm the only one who's unbought and unbothered and, and willing to say X, Y, and Z. But this should be an easy one. Yes, I said what I said. We should not condition aid to Israel. But whether he's in a liberal context or in a conservative context, it seems when he's asked some tough questions, about the exact words that he said in other, in other points, he, he claims that people are misquoting him, despite ample evidence that he's not being misquoted. People are now very prepared when they engage in, with interviews with him because they know he's just going to say that he didn't say what he said. Mm -hmm. And this gets back to the initial point. Who is he? Why is it that we can find instances of him saying different things a week ago, five months ago, than he's saying now? And is there a legitimate concern that he is this bright-eyed young guy that we saw at the Kennedy School who is creating himself in the image that he thinks the public wants to see as well, opposed to something that's authentic and we can rely on as I don't begrudge him for changing his 
views since 2004. Well, we don't know what right his views in he, 2004 were. Well, I, right, he's in a Democratic uh, um, gathering. Although he, I think he well, said he, he voted for the Libertarian he, Party he, in 2004. You know, it's just attending. I don't think that it's fair to say that someone's a Democrat just because they went to mm -hmm. see a Democratic political mm -hmm. candidate come to cam campus. Well, I but the thrust of the question was, was not, it, it, I don't know, the question didn't seem to come from a conservative point of it came from you're the no but I, i'm certainly not judging him based okay. on anyway childhood yeah. po uh, politics you're you're right that he should he should be more careful and he should just stick to his guns when his guns are right as they are on the question of ukraine funding foreign aid to israel and other countries actually his viewpoint is is well um, respected and regarded among actual conservatives, actual Republican voters, agree with a less muscular foreign policy, a less interventionist yeah. foreign policy. They don't love foreign aid. They think that money should be spent here, if at all. So he can stick to his guns and just say, Yes, we're not we're not responsible for you know defending the state of Israel. They they shouldn't. It doesn't need to to be uh, more exorbitant what we're giving them, giving to anybody else. And the American people have, I think, a different set of priorities than the priorities of neoconservatives and interventionists yeah, everywhere. Absolutely. And he should stick to that. And that would be my he, advice. He Instead of trying to be all things <laughs> to all people, to all he should, sides. But Bobby, of let's, the let's talk movement. about the thing. We all agree that we agree with Vivek on this particular policy, but he is backtracking. He backtracks when pressed like this. And there was another yeah, was moment in this interview. Yeah, he was backtracking to Sean there, and he just should have stuck so, to his guns. So what is going on? There was another oh. another clip um, I mean, he's uh, trying to be all that we don't— all people. That, and that's, that's the critique that I'm making here. Not, it's not of the yeah. policy, it's of his choice. Well, I agree. So there's another, there's another clip from this interview. Uh, we don't have time to play, but we should people should go and find it and watch in their own time, where he similarly asked about his stance on Taiwan, China, and the semiconductor issue. We ended up early on having a disagreement on the show about— what he really believed here, because we both read his remarks differently. You, I, I said, well, he said it's strategic, he, he, it's a strategic clarity. And you were saying, no, he's anti-interventionist in China. He's saying that we're not going to fight a war. And I said, well, no, when we, when we re-read read the statements, he says that he will, he has, he has said full-throatedly that we will defend Taiwan against China, potentially World War III, till the end, to, for the next four years until we get semiconductor independence, which foreign policy experts say is an incredible escalation and puts America at risk for those next four years. And when he was pressed about that on Sean Hannity, now Sean Hannity disagrees with that. He thinks that we should be always willing to go to China without any caveats or whatsoever. Well, always willing to go to war with China. Sorry, go to war with China, yes, without any caveats whatsoever, which I disagree with. Yeah. Again, Vivek seemed to cave to pressure and be equivocating about what his stance actually was. And there's some irony in him saying, well, I want strategic clarity about this particular issue, when he's done nothing but create ambiguity about where he actually stands here. And, you know, it has not been a good media few days. There was another story about how, despite saying, I can speak freely about climate change because I'm not bought and paid for, there was that big moment at the debate. He, in fact, apparently uh, runs an investment firm dedicating to drilling fossil fuels and benefits personally from fossil fuel development. I mean, all of this stuff is coming out now that is not just stuff I don't like about him, but kind of hypocrisy or half-truths that he's told about himself. And so I'm, I'm really curious to see how that evolved, people's perception of him evolves um, as he has more of a record that he has to actually defend and not run away from in these interviews. Yeah, I don't know how that stuff's going to affect him, but he shouldn't, um, if I were advising him, I would warn him about uh, seeming to waver or pivot from the anti-interventionist -inter lane, which is an 
under, despite how popular it is among Republicans, is an underrepresented place to be compared to the other candidates. Don't be afraid to tell to tell uh, you know senior the senior pundit class in the Republican Party that no, you are breaking from what they and their previous candidates have advised for years because that is what actually the Republican Party voters. Yeah, and, and in his defense, I mean not his defense, but like the reality is this is why it's important to have like. I mean, look it, at Tucker. Tucker's the most influential right wing commentator, and he has totally. Totally different foreign policy views than Hannity. Yeah, this is why it's so important to have a structural analysis of why people behave the way they behave. Liking someone, feeling like they gave a good soundbite, is not enough. The reason why there's such consensus around uh, military interventionism, the blob, et cetera, United States of America on both sides of the aisle is because it's an incredibly powerful institutional base. And anybody, no, no matter what's in your heart of hearts, is going to feel pressure to conform to the mainstream analysis there, the mainstream belief there. And so Vivek Ramaswamy, if you want to be able to stand up against the blob, you have to have a movement behind you. You have to have a, a, a specific plan about how you're going to go yeah. about doing things like defunding the FBI and cutting the military budget. Elizabeth Warren happily votes along with increases to the military budget, despite whatever lip service you give about wanting green energy right. and all those kinds of things. AOC that, does. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. That's the most how, principled anti-war people exactly. end up. Uh, I mean, look at Barack Obama. It, ran explicitly on an anti-war platform and then committed more troops to Afghanistan. Exactly. So what? What? How are you going to be different? It's not enough just yeah. to say things on a campaign trail. And RFK Jr. has been really bringing attention to this. He argues that his family members were killed in part because of their willingness to stand up against the deep state. And yeah. I think there's a lot of credibility to that sort of argument. So what are you, what one, can you even believe that you are even sincerely invested in this given the lack of record you have? Um, and two, uh, even if you do sincerely believe in it, what is your plan to get farther here than any other person has managed to do in the history of American politics? All right, more rising for you right after this. Hail King Donald. <laughs> MSNBC's Rachel Maddow forecasted what former President Donald Trump's future in political office could look like. Let's listen to this. The election means one of two things, if this is the way he's going to approach it. Either he loses the election and he goes to prison, or he wins the election, he doesn't go to prison, and is that for life, that he gets to be president? Will we keep having more elections? Or no? If every election is a new opportunity for him to go to prison, do you think he allows us to have new elections? I mean, if those are the stakes, if winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? I mean, if Trump and his supporters see the stakes as losing and going to prison or winning and being president and probably president for life, how should we expect that he and the Republican Party and Republican officials in swing states are going to handle the conduct of that election that Trump may very well lose? President for life? What? How's <laughs> yeah. he gonna be president for life? So this has been- He's gonna cancel the elections, that's what she thinks. Well, people have been pointing to this as hyperbolic and the kind of fear-mongering yeah. that Democrats are using to you know, encourage people to go to the polls. Um, Let's just take it seriously for one second, though. Mm -hmm. There has been a history of various leaders across the world and right here in the United States of America advocating and successfully advocating to extend term limits so that they could stay in office longer. Um, Republican turned Democrat turned whatever he is now, Michael Bloomberg, did this in New York City. He got the city council to vote to extend 
uh, term limit so that he could have another consecutive term in office. It is a thing that people can get consent to do. I'm not I'm not opining on we how it is. We got it in managed. our constitution. Not, I want to be Doug Burgum here without <laughs> my pocket constitution and say, sorry, you can't do that as constitutional member. I mean, we would it would take. He's never going to get what two thirds of the states have to ratify constitutional amendments. Yeah, well, people would with that. People would have thought it was impossible to lose an election, to stay in office once the election, the votes are tallied, and you've actually lost the election. It is. But they are concerned, looking at how close this uh, plan was that he's now being indicted for, to intentionally create ambiguity it wasn't about really the that vote close count. To working though. It's, it's interesting to play out in a world where Mike Pence played along and created the the ambiguity. Remember, the ambiguity wasn't the goal. Mm -hmm. um, they understood, the, I think the quote was dead on arrival, that the fake slates of electors weren't going to stand up meaningfully to any right. kind of cl cl close scrutiny right. it was or the review. confusion was going to allow for them allow to, them to kick it to the states. To the, and then once yeah. it's kicked to the voting the by house. state legislature, to the House, the, voted right. by state in the House, then the Supreme Court is the one that opines as to whether or not that vote tally was appropriate. And given the political nature of the Supreme Court, the idea being that they, they could very reasonably decide in his favor, just like Bush v. Gore. And many people yeah. understand that to be a wrongly I mean, held Bush v. Decision. v. Gore was a genuine—I mean, was a, <laughs> the narrowest election ever, you know, adjudicating yeah. a, a genuinely tricky situation where we're talking about— like a few hundred votes that were weirdly and accidentally, but obviously cast for the wrong person because of how that stupid county in Florida made their ballots. Um, yeah, that was so that think, one could have gone either way. You, sure. So you think though, with the current Supreme Court we have, you were confident that they wouldn't have upheld a Trump verdict. Yeah, I'm pretty confident. What, what's the basis of that? I because mean, they rebuffed like, him over and over. How was the Supreme Court rebuffed? They Donald didn't. They Trump didn't want to hear over. any of his challenges. Right? They just rejected them. Right. This is At the different. Supreme Court level, but this they is, rejected him. Mm, this is different. And what we've seen is a Supreme Court. We saw there was that um, uh, Alito yeah. uh, deep dive, I think, in New York Magazine uh, earlier this year, maybe at the end of last year, that was a kind of more personalized insight into the public statements that these judges have increasingly been making, increasing polarization of the court, increasingly uh, bold with these corruption charges against um, mm -hmm. uh, Clarence Thomas and the like, increasingly not recusing themselves from cases where they are obviously having co conflicts of interest, and increasingly writing judgments that even conservative legal scholars say strain the limits of the law, breaking dramatically with precedent, including precedent of other conservatives of, of yesteryear. So, I mean, I mean, the Supreme Court routinely does rule against. Um, it, it it does sometimes rebuff uh, conservative influence. All right, so it sometimes rebuffs conservative influence is the kind of ambiguity that makes someone like Rachel Maddow, understandably, I think, not in the in the in the perhaps in the context of. Uh, uh, extending term limits, but in the context of generally generally being able to steal elections, tweak outcomes, makes people not ex especially confident that the Supreme Court is going to be a last bulwark in favor of democracy. Are you willing to roll the dice on that sort of thing? I think I, I really do think this is the most recent. Well, I'm not, I mean, I'm not a supporter of Trump, but I'm I also do trust in the institution of the Supreme Court Oof. to prevent his installation as permanent dictator, in fact. It's, it's funny because after 1-6, there was this mockery of the idea that Trump could really actually steal the election um, and that 
a characterization of liberals as being histrionic because they were like, well, politics doesn't work like that. Just because I have possession of Congress right. with a mob, it doesn't mean that that magically makes Donald Trump president. And of course that's true. And there was this a, a, a suggestion that as various aspects of that day got debunked, oh, they didn't really have zip ties, for instance. That was more and more evidence that there was no real danger of the of the election being overturned. Right. I mean, there, there, was, really... there was no real danger of the right. of but, the but, riot but, causing the election. This, the, is, this yeah. is exactly the point that I'm trying to get to. Yeah. But for and that months, was emphasized by liberals. But, but for months, it was, well, the liberals were wrong about the zip ties. The liberals were wrong about how many people had weapons. The liberals were wrong about who instigated this. Trump has plausible deniability. He said to protest peacefully. Therefore, there was no real risk. What we are now finally getting to, mm -hmm. with the context of the specific indictment claims, is that it wasn't about 1-6. And when you look at all of the weeks leading up to 1-6, where, during which Trump and the co-conspirators were allegedly forging documents and um, you know, squeezing election officials and, and doing all of the kinds of things that now have these RICO, uh, have amounted to these RICO charges. I'm, I'm sorry, it does seem like Donald, uh, Mike Pence played a really pivotal role in preventing things from going over the edge. Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay his role in that, but it, it, I mean, the transition happened with all the usual fanfare, lack of, uh, it, was, it was not surprising it happened. And, you know, everyone involved in this effort is now being, like, exhaustively prosecuted, right? Um, no, but they didn't get off scot-free. Trump and all the co-conspirators, they're now going to face legal proceedings over and over again. It's not like, oh, we almost pulled it off. Better luck next time. Next time we'll have a better but, strategy. But, Robbie, saying two years later they're being indicted, great. On the, at the time it happened, we were close. We now know. I mean, I think this a lot of the stuff came out during the 1-6 commission, but it was just not— uh, one six hearings, but it wasn't emphasized. We now know that if Pence had agreed with the plan, if if Pence had gone along with the memo that outlined this outlined this plan, at very least we would have been in a situation where probably through the proposed inauguration date and all of that, mm -hmm. we were still working through the reality of the situation. There are there's a significant. What do we, how do we know that? We, we, we literally don't know. That's the point that I'm making, but it's okay. a possibility. The fact that there is a non-zero chance that there would have been ongoing discussion about whether or not Joe Biden was duly elected because Mike Pence and this alternative reality said, no, this, this, the House gets to Biden vote and the House votes for immediately followed suit, uh, filed suit. Yeah, and now we're at the Supreme Court. Said, this is the yeah, entire and point. And what's the Supreme Court going to— Joe Biden is the president. I, 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 don't, I really don't know how you can say that with confidence. I really don't know how you can say that with confidence, because we never should have been in that. We never should get to that point. And but for well, my that's Pence, fine. You can say we never should get to that point. We would I we agree. would have gotten to that point. We had fully fraudulent, lying groups of people who who made fake documents, lying about what the vote, vote totals that were were in their and state. And to the extent they did that, they're going to go to prison. Knowingly false, like knowingly false. And they were told this. Some of these people were like told only if the court judgments in those states turn up some fraud will I agree to this document being submitted, knowing that there was no evidence at the time, but saying, okay, fine, if it, if it comes out, then I'll put my name to this document. And then had it submitted anyway against their wishes. So there was a fraud upon some of these conservative co-conspirators who were like in the wrong, but not necessarily willing to commit full hog to election mm -hmm. overturning. Like, th this is the context that we're in. So the idea that, like, oh, that's a bridge too far, that kind of claim is histrionic. Like, I agree that that Rachel Maddow is overstepping here. But this is the world—I I don't want to pretend, like, her hysteria doesn't have some basis in reality because of the way that certain Republicans in leadership 
have behaved. And only because of the integrity of certain other conservatives in leadership, including many members of Trump's DOJ, who were telling him full-throatedly that he was wrong about these uh, election claims, did we not end up in this ambiguous alternative reality? Mm. I don't think that alternative reality was very likely, but obviously we can't know. What, what percent of Republicans still believe that the that, that doesn't that matter Biden for wasn't? the process? The process is the process. I'm making a different point. So what percentage of Republicans, I think it's a majority of Republicans or close to half that still think that well, the it's election a lot, was but stolen I mean, there, there are Democratic top, at the top, at the, the highest level who think Hillary Clinton and Stacey okay. Abrams and other people. So just, their belief in it is not. That, that's fine. The point is, here it is. Um, percentage of Republicans who think Biden's 2020 win was Ill illegitimate ticks back up to near 70%. This is yeah. a poll from August 3rd. I mean, 70%. Poll, right, poll Democrats in January of 2016. So this is the question. If Imagine if it had even gotten farther and if there had been a vote in the House that corroborated that Donald Trump won, how much that would have shored up these beliefs. Now imagine a world where Donald Trump is saying that the election was stolen from me. What kind of public support can he get to continue to stay in office? I mean, that's that's where people are going with this. When you have the masses of the public, I mean, Republicans believing who a commit lie. to that messaging can't even get elected in in districts that are held by Republicans in states that vote Republican. So I don't understand how you can attribute that to simply election denialism when Donald Trump, the the king of election denialism, is polling at forty odd points ahead of everybody else in the in the race, and also even though he wasn't even there on the debate stage, managed to peer pressure almost everybody on the stage into agreeing that he's the, the, the subject a, of an unfair political prosecution. It's a general election liability. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. It's a huge general election liability. We'll have more rising right after this. have some new polling numbers from the 2024 Democratic presidential primary contest. Joe Biden is still leading with 60% of the vote, while Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has enjoyed small gains on the presidential race. He's got 19% of the vote. Marianne Williamson has hit double digits. She is at 10%. Now, Kennedy recently sat with Fox News' Jesse Waters in Central Park, where he railed on mainstream media for not allowing him to speak directly to their audiences. CNN, MSNBC, did they invite you on? No. Why not? You would have to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like you'd be a natural fit over there. What do you think's changed? CNN and MSNBC have become, you know, openly partisan and uh, very, very much aligned with the uh, Democratic National Committee. And, um, you know, they share the same uh, sort of anger at my candidacy, and they don't—they'll uh, they'll do stories about me, but they won't allow me to talk directly to their audience. Speaking of CNN, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries took to the network yesterday where he insisted voters know Joe Biden is a good and decent man, and he has nothing to worry about going into 2024. Are you confident? when you look at what the Justice Department has done, when you look at the investigations into Hunter Biden that the Republicans have pursued up to this point, that there hasn't been any wrongdoing, everything's been about board. Yes, I'm extremely uh, confident. The American people know fundamentally that Joe Biden is a good and decent man uh, who's dedicated his life to public service uh, and will continue to serve the people honorably uh, and admirably. On the other hand, you've got people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and George Santos and others who are running the show uh, amongst the House Republican majority. It's an extreme group of people. 
uh, who aren't really trying to improve the lives of the American people. As Democrats, we're going to continue to put people over politics uh, and to focus on lowering costs, better paying jobs, safer communities, growing the economy for the middle class and delivering. That will be a clear contrast that will be available to us to present to the American people in November of 2024. Does that ring true to you? A man couldn't miss the point more. Who does he think he's convincing with this? Does he think that there are working class and poor Americans that are watching this program that said, well, you know, cost of living has gone up exponentially over the last 20 years. Uh, inflation is still making the price of groceries in the store uh, difficult for me to, to feed my family. Just as uh, George Santos, the leader of the Republican Party, wanted. <laughs> <laughs> like the, 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 the cost of education is skyrocketing. The cost of transportation is skyrocketing. Um, but Hakeem Jeffries got on TV and told me that Joe Biden was a good person. So all is fine yeah. in the world. That's, that seems designed to push back on, on the corruption and the Hunter Biden accusations. I, I guess that's how they're trying to deflect from that. No, he's just a great father. Best father. America's father, really. I don't, I don't <laughs> Sounds I don't like you were it. slipping into your Trump impression a little bit there. <laughs> he's the best father. <laughs> Ever many people are saying, such a good father. It's the first time hearing about it. Anyway. Yeah. He also really misses the point about why people find the, you know, extreme right faction of the party to be inspiring. I think a lot of Republicans, they look at what, let's say, the priorities of the Freedom Caucus are, and they don't necessarily even agree with those priorities. Because there's poor and working class Republicans, too, who don't exactly think that, you know, disbanding the FBI is going to put food in their stomach. Mm -hmm. However, what they do see is that there is a diversity of opinion among the uh, Republican Party and a faction that is willing to fight ostensibly for them, at least in theory, well, for, for them. You're kind for of something. saying, say what you will about the tenets of National Socialism, but at least it's an ethos. <laughs> Is that what you're doing? <laughs> yes, except for that. I think that's, um, yeah. Let's, yeah. let's I, go. Go ahead. Well, I was going to go back. If you want to say more on this, go ahead, because I want to go back to RFK Jr. Sure. You were talking about... Um, you know, why he—we're we're, we've been discussing him a little bit less in maybe the last, I don't know, two weeks or something, um, which yeah, you, you can have a news cycle. You can, you know, fade from the news cycle a little bit. There's no reason to think he might not come back. I do think um, his candidacy over time was drawing more and more, and it continues to draw more and more um, support from right-wing people. Obviously, you know, that's not entirely true, and, and he's running as a Democrat, and actually a lot of Democrats are turned have been turned off by Joe Biden's policies, particularly on foreign policy and COVID, where RFK Jr. is, you know, most at odds with what mainstream Democrats want today. Mm -hmm. um, however, because of th those are now kind of right-wing things, he had a lot of right-wing interest. Um, I and I think some of that right-wing interest is now, in now that we've had the debates, there's more focus among right-wing people. Well, what is... DeSantis think about this? What does Vivek Ramaswamy think about this? What do the other candidates think about this? And maybe that's why he's faded a little bit. Although, uh, you know, Fox News is still having him on. He just did that interview that we played some of with Jesse Waters. And um, I, I, he could very much have a, you know, a, yeah, a media I, resurgence. I think two things are happening here. One is what you've just pointed out, which is that now that there's real conservatives in the race, there's no yeah. need, or there's, they've always been in the race, but now that there are They're media events that are highlighting the words, thoughts, and feelings, and policies of actual conservatives in the GOP race, there's less of a need to cater to or really uh, platform RFK Jr. from the conservative. But also, I do think that, you know, some of the substantive 
gaffes, let's call them, that he uh, had at the end of last month. Um, you can say that they were in bad faith, but I do think they ultimately deemed him. Hmm. I think a lot of this organic, real support that he did have on the left uh, for his anti-war views uh, was really diminished by his stance on Israel-Palestine. Um, I, I don't see him on my leftist timeline at all anymore. I don't think that there's anybody who has much confidence in him because uh, Palestinian mm. rights are such a foundational issue to the left. And then back uh, uh, on the right, I, I do think that the, the, the liberal press was enjoying using him as a kind of a whipping boy to make a uh, to grandstand about how terrible um, certain conservative beliefs were that they thought were being funneled through and platformed by RFK Jr. And now that there are so many other conservatives saying other things that are considered to be um, wrong and out of step with public opinion. Democrats can just talk about what Vivek Ramaswamy or um, uh, uh, DeSantis or somebody like that has to say. They don't need him anymore to make the argument that Republicans. He still seems are bad. very popular, I should say, among um, some of my people, among many libertarians. So I don't mm. know if there's an opening for him there. If he's so committed to um, to you know remaining a Democrat and seeing yeah. this through, but it and looks to me like to, there's an opening for to, him. To there. this particular interview, I mean, many many liberals have been arguing that the only reason that the right has been interested in RFK Jr. is because since he's running as a Democrat, they are just elevating him as a knock against Joe Biden. Um, and, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily, I don't think it's fair to use that argument to discount what I think is legitimate organic interest in RFK Jr. However, I do think that that is obviously happening. Do I think that Jesse Waters is ever going to vote for someone like RFK Jr., genuinely supportive of someone like RFK Jr.? Not really. It obviously advantages conservatives for there to be more division in, sure. the, in the Democratic primary. I support that, by the way, because I think there should be a real primary. But I do think that's part of what's happening when you see them kind of scoop him back up out of irrelevance. Sure, although I don't want to underemphasize that, you know, he is— Taking the fight to Biden on on two or three issues again, in particular the COVID stuff and the Ukraine stuff, where you know conservatives are all about what he's saying and are cheering him and you know wish you know want those policies enacted and wish Dem, you know wish the Democratic administration would be you know would be less inclined to require vaccinations and lockdowns and everything else um, and and the funding of Ukraine. So he you know he is it's not just. Like they're they're not they're not just platforming and celebrating and putting any Democrat on a pedestal because you know suck at Joe Biden. They're doing this to <laughs> someone who is who who is most vocal on things that that conservatives and independents and libertarians and contrarians and, and dissident Democrats think should be heard. I, 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 well, look, I'll say this: they had uh, Newsom on. Newsom yeah. is not some counter-establishment rabble-rouser, but the idea that, that Gavin Newsom would maybe get into the race was enough to get him a platform on Fox News. They've, you know, they've had Marianne Williamson on, who doesn't, isn't a big kind of COVID, yeah. anti-lockdown sort of a personality. Well, they, they've had them on, and they should. That's a good, you know. No, you, of but, course they should. But the, the argument that they are platforming RFK Jr. kind of largely because they just believe in what he stands for. I, you know, I, I'm not saying that they don't, there isn't that overlap of ideology. There obviously is. But I also do think it's a lot about wanting to stick it to the Democrats. And again, I don't have a problem with that at all. I'm so glad that they have an, an opportunity to go on Fox News. I just think that it's a little bit of a mix. Of, if, if, if these people were not, um, if they, I think they were, if they were independent candidates, if they were somehow not advantageous to the Republican effort of splitting the primary vote and getting digs on at Joe Biden, I, I just don't think there would be as much of, a, of an opportunity, of, of an incentive, rather, to go ahead and do it. Mm. Yeah, well, um, I, I think that's all for us.